Well, happy new year, Riverview. Good morning to those who are joining online and over at our Rio venue. Uh, My name is James. I am one of the pastors here. Today is my 54th birthday. Uh, Yep, so, yep, just cheering for doing nothing, uh, basically. So, just to survive in the day. Uh, If you haven't got me a gift yet, I I love the Chick-fil-A. I love history, especially Bible stuff and free golf. And that's pretty much it. So my birthday parties are a wild scene, uh, as you can imagine. Um, This morning, we find ourselves sort of in between sermon series here at RIV. We're sort of at the back end of our Advent uh, uh, series that we've been going through here during the Christmas uh, time. And then next weekend, we're going to begin our study of the gospel of Mark. And so today, what I want to do is partly put a bow on that Advent series and partly provide some context uh, for our, our study of the book of Mark, but mostly look forward to 2023 with questions that we should be asking ourselves, not just at the beginning of this year, but at the beginning of every year, every month, every week, and every day. And the questions really kind of go like this. Who are we really? And whose are we really? Who is our king? Whose kingdom are we committed to build? We'll approach these questions through the lens of the royal family of King Herod that ruled in Israel during the time leading up to the birth of Jesus and throughout the balance of the New Testament. And so we're going to just kind of jump right in here. Um, Our text for today will be Matthew chapter 2. Matthew is the first book here in the New Testament. Um, It's about I would say, yeah, two-thirds of the way through if you have a hard copy of the Bible. Uh, It's the first of the four gospel or good news accounts of the life of Jesus uh, right before Mark's gospel, which we'll be jumping into next week. Matthew provides some useful context that Mark doesn't and uh, will will give us a little bit of a foundation for next week. And also uh, we'll be looking at the life of King Herod here as well. It starts like this. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, Now, I'm going to stop there because a very good Bible study practice, whenever you see a mention of a person or a place, especially one that you don't know much about, it's always wise to pause. And if you have some time, do a little bit of research and reading to find out the significance. Matthew spends a whole chapter here talking about Herod. He gives us two places, Bethlehem and Judea. He's giving us context, the who, the where, the when, the why, all of that. And so we're going to stop here for a moment and take a closer look, starting with King Herod. Now, I was sick for two full weeks uh, before Christmas, and um, so I spent a lot of time resting at home. Uh, During that time, my wife and I, we caught up on the fifth season of that Netflix series, The The Crown. I don't know if anybody has seen The Crown. It's a behind-the-scenes look at the British royal family beginning in the 1950s when Queen Elizabeth uh, became, she assumed the throne at the age of 25. This is the Queen Elizabeth who just died a few months ago. She was the queen for like 70 years, okay? Is anybody gonna turn 25 this year in this room? 
Anybody going to hit their 25th birthday? Nobody? Anybody just turned 25 around somebody over here? You're going to be our new king of England, right over here. This person right over here, right? When you watch The Crown, one of the things you realize is how different and uniquely challenging life is inside of the context of a royal family, uh, including for the person who actually wears the crown. On the one hand, there's enormous pressure on everyone in this family uh, to never do anything to dishonor the crown or to dishonor their family. They take great pains to maintain a squeaky clean front-facing image, right? And at the same time, human queens and kings and kingdoms are flawed and complicated and ultimately they all fail, right? And so projecting this public image of the perfect family is exhausting and ultimately impossible. Just to give you one example, in season five of The Crown that my wife and I have been watching, a lot of the story focuses on Princess Diana, uh, who was 20 when she married Prince Charles, uh, Queen Elizabeth's oldest son. She was marrying the future king. It sounds like this is going to be a fairy tale, right? I'm, I'm marrying the queen's son, and I'm going to be, end up being you know, the, the, this royalty. She said that when she walked down the aisle with, with Charles, she felt like a lamb being led to slaughter. Her life, if you watch this program, is fascinatingly complex. She developed a terrible eating disorder. She had multiple affairs, as did Prince Charles. She survived several suicide attempts, just a very toxic and volatile life. In fact, this promotional image from the series depicts it beautifully, right? I mean, this guy's mom is in the middle of your whole marriage, right? And that's, that's kind of the way, it's a little bit like the same issues we've been reading about Harry and, and uh, yes, you guys know her. being under that microscope, right? They've been in the news as well. Jesus was born into a world of kings and queens and kingdoms. Very complex, very corrupt, very distinct from what we are used to. These are not elected officials. They, uh, we don't, you know, you don't vote on who's going to be, these people are born into, they don't get the, the, these roles because they're qualified. They get, it's, 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 it's birthright, they're, they're, or they're manipulated into these positions. And so in the late first century BC, right before Jesus was born, Israel uh, was divided into these sub-regions, Galilee, Samaria, Judea, and Idumea. Herod had been named the governor of Galilee uh, because his dad was good friends with Julius Caesar. And then in 37 BC, the Romans appointed him as the ruler in Judea down in this area. Uh, They gave him a huge army and he used it to violently overthrow the previous ruler. So the people there, they didn't want him to be their king. He just was nominated. In fact, the the Romans gave him the title King of the Jews. Now, a lot of people think because he was called the King of the Jews that King Herod was Jewish. And there's, I mean, it's hard to say. It's a little bit complicated. Herod's father was an Edomite, right? Idumea is this area down here, uh, which meant he descended from Esau, okay? If you know the story of Esau, that's Isaac's oldest son who had a twin brother named Jacob. Jesus descended from Jacob. 
Herod descended from Esau, which is fascinating by itself. Go study that on your own. If you remember, Esau and Jacob, they fought while they were in the womb together. And here, Jesus and Herod are still, it's this, this, that, that fight almost has never ended, right? And so Herod did have a Jewish lineage, and he did practice some of the Jewish customs. Some of them he ignored, like when he would kill people. That wasn't part of the Jewish law. They didn't appreciate him for that. And so the, the, some people considered him a Jew. The Jewish people who lived there, they thought he was a wretched traitor. They hated Herod. His mom was Arab. His parents had pledged their loyalty to the Roman Empire, he had a Greek name, and so he was just sort of this mix of different things. Herod is the Greek word for hero, and that's the way Herod saw himself. I'm the hero in the story, right? You're going to see that here in a moment. And so a big part of his reign consisted of him trying to figure out how to navigate these different voices, right? His Roman overlords the Greek worldview, the Jews that were his subjects, they all had vastly different perspectives and worldviews and priorities. And so he developed three strategies for building and, uh, and, and, and preserving his kingdom. Strategy number one was to rule through family. Depending on which historian you read, Herod either had eight or 10 or 15 wives which you would know the difference, right, if you were that person. How many wives do I have, right? And he had 19 children. I was going to put Herod's family tree up here, but we couldn't fit it on the screen, and it was very complex. So just imagine his marriages were very strategic, right? So he would marry women from different uh, countries and backgrounds and faith traditions in order to gain favor with the people group that they represent. And then he put his sons in charge of everything, um, some of you may be familiar with the story <clears throat> of John the Baptist being arrested by Herod or because he criticized Herod. That was Herod's son, King Herod's son. And, uh, and, and, and th this didn't go over well, uh, Herod putting his sons in charge of everything because they were generally completely unqualified, incompetent, terrible, corrupt people, okay? Strategy number two was to rule with force. Without using hyperbole, I can say this from all, I read 15 or 20 different articles about Herod in the last month or so. Herod was a paranoid, deranged, jealous, insecure maniac, okay? And a genius in some ways. He was one of those crazy genius kind of guys. Um, just to give you a couple examples, Herod was, anybody who had met him knew and wrote historians that he was very unattractive and overweight, um, and he ended up dying. Uh, he was ravaged by a, his body was ravaged by a venereal disease. Um, it was just, it was known that was true. But Herod, had, when he had coins minted, it, the, the, this picture was like of this, this perfect looking person. They had sculptures made out in front of all of his palaces. He was like ripped and good looking. You know, it was kind of like first century Instagram, right? He, he photoshopped abs onto himself, right? Um, and so this, this kind of desire that he had to be perceived differently than he was, he, he, he was absolutely just crazy. Like no one was safe around him. He would have his enemies murdered. He would have his friends uh, murdered. He, he even had three of his own sons and one of his wives and her mom executed. 
In fact, before Herod died, he told one of his wives, on the day of my death, I want you to have my soldiers round up a bunch of influential, kind of popular, famous people from this region and have them executed in the, the, um, the arena so that, because he wanted to make sure that people would be crying when he died rather than rejoicing, which he suspected they would be doing. Now, the good news was his wife did not do that after he died. She did not do that, but that was his, the, the kind of person that he was. That's why Herod is rarely included in any Advent series, right? The angels and the shepherds and the wise men and Mary and Joseph, they were all there to worship Jesus. Herod was there to kill Jesus. He hated Jesus and was um, afraid of him. Strategy number three of Herod's was to rule through extravagant expansion. Herod commissioned the building of 15 different palaces and fortresses that he built during the 35 years he ruled in Judea. Some of those you can see here on the map. <clears throat> Not all of them were, were uh, in Israel, but these, um, the ones that are shaped like palaces, um, it's just no way to capture the sheer scope and audacity of Herod's building projects without seeing, you, seeing them for yourself. Um, just That's another quick commercial, by the way, for the trip we're doing with Riverview to Israel in May. We will be visiting four of Herod's uh, palaces during our trip. Each of these projects was unique and strategic. Okay, so for example, he built Caesarea Maritima up here. It was, uh, it's a flat coast of the Mediterranean Sea. He built a harbor there that wasn't there. This is like 2,000 years ago. The, the archaeologists and the architects and the, the people, the designers, the hydraulics people, they still don't understand how he did it. But he wanted to curry favor with the Romans and provide them with trade access. He even named it Caesarea. So they would, he was doing it strategically. He had, uh, uh, every five years, he built a huge arena there. It's massive. The, 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 they've excavated it. And they did gladiator games there in honor of the Caesar. So it was him, his way of currying favor with Caesar. Down here in Jerusalem, the, the Jews' temple, if you remember our study of Nehemiah, had been destroyed. And over time, they're trying to rebuild it. Herod rebuilt it in 10 times, 100 times the glory that it had been um, and he built his own palace next to it. And that was his way of, uh, the Jews loved him for that because the, he understood how important the temple was uh, to, to them. And so he, he was very strategic. So Jesus was born here in Bethlehem, was mentioned in the Matthew text, in the shadow of Herodium, which is one of Herod's incredible construction products named after himself, most scholars believe this was the place where he slept most nights, was in Herodium, and was his favorite place. This picture shows the view from Bethlehem looking uh, south towards Herodium, okay? You cannot miss uh, the, the Herodium uh, if you're anywhere around that area. In fact, the site was originally flat. And Herod, the first thing he did was he uh, brought in hundreds of slaves to pile up dirt so that the, the top where his palace was going to be was 50 meters higher than the, the highest point anywhere in the landscape. Like hundreds of people died in the process of just building the mountain up. They didn't have heavy machinery. These guys just carried dirt over there, right? 
And then if you look down into Herodias, this is today. This is the Herodian today. You can see it just dominates the landscape. You're looking down into the palace uh, from above. Remember, this was built over 2,000 years ago. Uh, It's just actually uh, pretty stunning to be there today. I cannot imagine what it was like in its original form. Looking at it from the side, um, you can see that's a photograph uh, looking, uh, uh, again, the, the upper palace is up here. And just to give you an idea of what was there, uh, Tim, go ahead and put the labels on there. He built uh, a swimming pool down here that was, just to give you the dimensions, 200 feet long, 140 feet wide, and 15 feet deep, 50% larger than a modern Olympic swimming pool. The nearest fresh water was five miles away. And so he had built an aqueduct so that it would have fresh water in his swimming pool. Okay? Herod's uh, lower palace was next to the pool, the bathhouse there. there uh, they've excavated up here. There's a, a terraced walkway that went up to the a- upper palace. Uh, it's just uh, an incredible, incredible structure. Um, if we zoom into this spot right here, This piece has all been excavated. When I was there 20 years ago, this was all just a green hillside, and they have excavated it since. He built this theater because um, one of the Caesars was coming to visit. He wanted him to have a special presentation, and the view looking out from that theater over the countryside is amazing. But the most incredible discovery they made is on this side of the street, they found Herod's mausoleum, which is his grave with the, the, um, the, the sarcophagus inside, which is the bone box. Most scholars believed he had been buried here, but they had never found his tomb. <clears throat> and Herod had always wanted Herodium to be his final resting place. He actually died in Jericho, and then they brought him uh, here. So this was a huge find, finding Herod's tomb. It's one of the most important discoveries they've made in the last uh, 15 or 20 years. Now, there's so much more that we could dive into here with Herod. And some of you are probably thinking, okay, that's very interesting, pa- Pastor James. You know, happy birthday. Great for you to be able to nerd out on all this weird history stuff. But why does this matter? Here's why it matters. Herod spent his entire life building his own kingdom. He sought to be the hero of the story. His kingdom was his only Priority. He threw his immense wealth at it. He used his considerable power to push down people who threatened it. He sacrificed his own family for it. And you know what the reward was at the end of the day? Historian after historian said that he was depressed, fearful, insecure, Lonely, and that those things only grew inside of him the larger his empire got. It reminds me so much of the book of Ecclesiastes, um, where Solomon talks about his building projects and his many wives and concubines and his influence and the years he spent sort of feeding the me monster, right? And at the end of the day, the result, and this is Solomon's own words in Ecclesiastes 2.11, he says, when I considered... All that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile, which means meaningless, pointless, 
purposeless, and a pursuit of the wind. It was like chasing around and trying to catch the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. That's King Herod. And if we're not careful, that will be us. Now, I doubt we'll ever be as brazen about it as Herod was or as Solomon was. But the biggest threat to our ability to influence the world for Jesus Christ is our desire to build our own many kingdoms. Which brings us back to the questions we looked at at the beginning of our time. Who are you? Whose are you really? Who is your king? Whose kingdom are you building? Herod spent his entire life asserting himself as king, and he becomes really a metaphor for us to learn from. He was trying to prove his worth his whole life. And then near the end of his life, at the height of his paranoia, Jesus is born. Matthew 2, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. And so he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and asked them, where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this was what, is what was written by the prophet. This is from the prophet Micah. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. What do you think happened inside of Herod when he hears they're looking for the king of the Jews and they're not referring to him. He's like, that's my job. That's my title. Well, it says here in the text, he was deeply disturbed. I mean, that's threatening his entire identity. Now, it seems like Herod was aware that the Jews were waiting for a Messiah, were waiting for a savior because he gathers all of the prominent Jewish leaders, I'm sure all of them were thrilled to be able to be part of this meeting with Herod, right? Tell me, guys, where's the Messiah going to be born? And they're like, in Micah, it says he's gonna be born in Bethlehem. And so look what Herod does in verse nine. After hearing the king, they, this is the wise men, did I, did I skip one? Oh, the, 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 sorry. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them, the wise men, also I'm sure they're thrilled with this, to Bethlehem and said, this is Herod's instructions. Go search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. Now, based on what we know about Herod, how many of you think he's planning to go and worship Jesus when he finds him in Bethlehem, right? Herod is, like, Herod is like panicking now. He's gathering people in these secret meetings and he's interrogating them and trying to manipulate them, desperately trying to maintain control. 
He has no idea who he's dealing with in Jesus, none. That Jesus is going to change the world and the landscape of the world forever. The world will never be the same because Jesus has been born. And so the wise men, verse nine, after hearing the king, they went on their way and there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place. This is like a miraculous star that's shining right above where the child Jesus was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child, this is a baby, Jesus, with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, that's Jesus's father, in a dream, saying, get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you. So Jesus and his family became refugees in Egypt for Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death so that it was Uh, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, this is from Hosea, might be fulfilled out of Egypt, I called my son. In my opinion, it's so fitting that Jesus was born in the shadow of the Herodium because Jesus was everything that Herod was not. Humble, dependent, approachable, life-giving, and more than anything else, he was actually really the king, right? God's hand was with Jesus every step of the way, going all the way back to the birth of Esau and Jacob and the promise that the older would serve the younger. Through the prophets like Micah and Hosea and Jeremiah and Isaiah who foretold the details of Jesus's life. Through the miraculous birth of Jesus, through the star that showed everyone the way to Jesus, through the angels who warned Joseph and the wise men about Herod's intentions. I will never forget the overwhelming joy that I felt when I met Jesus for the first time. I will never forget that. Changed my life forever. I was at rock bottom. I had nothing to lose. I was opposite of the way Herod was, right? He was threatened by Jesus. He, he thought he had everything to lose. What would prevent you today from falling on your knees and worshiping Jesus as those wise men did? Herod couldn't do it. To follow Jesus would have meant laying down everything that had been his identity his entire life. He just wasn't willing to let go. Look in verse 16. Then Herod, when he realized he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. You do not want to be around that, Herod. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under. In 
in keeping with the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and a great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. Herod went from deeply disturbed to panicked and now he's just out of control. He flies into a rage. He's so used to getting his way that his anger just takes over and and he gives orders to massacre any boy under the age of two years old that was living there in Bethlehem in order to exterminate Jesus in the process. If we kill all these children, Jesus will be one of them. Nobel winning prize author, Pearl Buck, uh, she was the daughter of missionaries and she was a passionate advocate for adoption and fair treatment of people on the margins, really influential person. She wrote, "The the true test of a civilization is the way it treats its most helpless members. And Herod failed that test miserably. He's having babies killed. Whether it was slaves or women or children or even his own family, they were all just a means to his end, right? And what we're gonna see in our study of Mark's gospel is that the new and true king of the Jews, Jesus Christ, he devoted his life to the most broken among us, to the point of sacrificing his life on our behalf. In Romans 5, 6, it says, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, right? That's who Jesus is. Matthew wraps up the story here. He says, after Herod died, we rejoice, right? An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, get up, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel because those who intended to kill the child are dead. So he got up, took the child, this is Jesus, and his mother entered the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus, that's one of Herod's sons, has taken over uh, Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, which is legitimately a good reason not to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. Then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. And that's where we'll pick up the story next week in the beginning of Mark's gospel. Jesus having grown up in Nazareth and beginning his life of public ministry. Now, I don't want to, this is like a spoiler alert, all right? You guys already know the story, but not to give away the best part, but the impact that Jesus would have on the world, and we're gonna, I'm so excited to study, uh, walk through the story of, of, that Mark shares as, as a church family. It turns out that King Herod was just the first of many people that felt so threatened by Jesus that they wanted to kill him. Many of the Jewish leaders, the Roman leaders, Herod's sons, they all wanted Jesus dead, and eventually they killed him. And it's fitting, in my opinion, that the inscription on the cross above Jesus' head was written in three languages, Luke says, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. It said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. That was the accusation 
against Jesus that turned out to be true. Because he was no mere human king, Jesus did not stay in the tomb like Herod did. He defeated death. He's alive today. He's the king and Lord of everything. And he wants us to build his kingdom. The questions that we need to ask ourselves, right? Who are we? Whose are we? Who is our king really? And whose kingdom are we committed to building? I'm gonna let a a pastor named S.M. Lockridge, I found out as I was reading a little bit, his actual name was Shadrach Meshach Lockridge. He's gonna have the last word this morning. He was the pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in San Diego for decades. I'm not gonna play his whole sermon because it's like 90 minutes long. And, uh, you know, it's January 1st. We'll we'll give you just a little sliver of S.M. Lockridge. He says it so much better than I ever could. He talks about King Jesus. This was a sermon he preached in 1976. And so we're going to hear a little snippet from him. And then once he's finished, uh, Micah and Joel are going to be back on stage and uh, they'll lead us in a time of more worship through song together. The Bible says he's a king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings. And he is the Lord of lords. Now that's my king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. And he's impartially merciful. That's my king. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's a fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one able to supply all of our needs simultaneously. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. Do you know him? Well, my king is a key of knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you, but he, he's indescribable. He's indescribable. Yeah. He, 
He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mouth. You can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's right.